Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Indiana University Press. Their Life of the Past series is lavishly illustrated and meticulously documented to showcase the latest findings and most compelling interpretations in the ever-changing field of paleontology. Find their books at iupress.indiana.edu. This week, we have a bunch of news, including a new dinosaur. We have an interview with Dr. Denver Fowler and Dr. Liz Friedman Fowler. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Netoceratops. But first, as always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons because we basically operate primarily on our Patreon supporters. So this week, we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, and Albertosaurus. And Albertosaurus just joined. And with that, we're up to 105 patrons. Woo! So if we get just five more patrons, we'll be able to cut down the echoes in our videos with some new noise treatments. And that means we're actually going to have to make some videos because <laughs> it's a lot easier for us to do audio because we've been doing this for several years now. And every time we do video, it's a whole ordeal to remember all the additional steps the video requires. Yeah, but we have some ideas. Yeah, and that would motivate us to actually get moving on it. Don't forget to, if you're a patron now, we have a Discord server so you can chat with us and with fellow dinosaur enthusiasts. So now is a good time to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. First of the news, we have an article by Philip Mannion and others in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. And they were looking at basically all of the sauropods. Nice. <laughs> Just mostly with the goal of figuring out how sauropods from Tanzania fit into sort of the whole family tree of sauropods. And what they ended up finding out, to sort of skip to the end, is that Tanzania has a really amazing assemblage of these different sauropod groups. So they've got sort of different distantly related family members, as we usually think of them, like you've got things like mementosaurs with the really long necks. You've got things that are like diplodocus with the really long tail. You've got things like brachiosaurus with the really, you know, more upright posture. So you've got this whole sort of distribution of different sauropods. And if you look at Tanzania, even though they've only found about seven different animals, and by that I mean different species there, they cover a lot of these categories. So it's really cool. And it's a good way to kind of get an overview of maybe one slice in time how these different animals were interacting and maybe some selective pressures and things like that. Whereas in a lot of other places, like, well, we find a lot of titanosaurs there, but that's all we find. <laughs> so we can have a very good idea about what titanosaurs were in Argentina at a certain point in the Cretaceous, but we don't really know how that might have interacted with other sauropods. So Tanzania especially is a good place to study sauropods because you get more of a diversity in different families of sauropods than you do a lot of other places. But where exactly they fit into the family tree was a little bit uncertain. So what this group did was they looked at, like I said, 117 different sauropod species, and each individual had as many as 542 characters, 
which we've talked about before. That's basically measurements of the bones. Occasionally, it's other things, like it could be something more descriptive, like the type of feeding it did, or maybe if it had feathers and something things like that. Something weird to make it stand out. Yeah, just anything that makes it unique or could help you identify which family it might be in. Then they used this huge list of characters, as most paleontologists do these days, and plug it into different programs to sort of analyze all this data and parse it out into little families. Little big families. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much how phylogenetic or this family tree research is done these days. And then the only question is, what kind of assumptions do you make going into it and which models you use to sort of combine the different species into their relative families? I was thinking as I was looking at this huge number of characters, though, there was a talk at SVP where they mentioned how often these large data sets have transcription errors, especially because this one would have tens of thousands of numbers, and they're pretty much all keyed in manually. A lot of them are based on either drawings or measurements that were done and then written in by hand at oh, some point, especially if the fossils were lost. So if it was hard to read the handwriting. Yeah, or they wrote it wrong the first time. It's like a game of telephone where you have a copy of a copy of a copy sometimes. So it can get a little bit dicey, and that can lead to some pretty weird results with your family trees if you're not careful. But assuming that it's good, because I don't have the information to check this or the time, <laughs> they got some pretty interesting results of their seven known Tanzanian sauropods. And I should specify, even though I keep saying Tanzania, they're really all from Tendaguru, which is an area in southeast Tanzania near Mozambique. And it's actually only a couple hundred miles from Madagascar these days across the ocean there. So it's near some other dinosaurs that we've talked about in the past. And among the fossils was a dinosaur previously considered to be Janentia. And the original Janentia was pretty good for a sauropod. It included most of the right leg with the full foot. So mm. that's pretty cool. And I should say the back leg, because at this point, the front limbs are also feet <laughs> and legs. <laughs> but they also found several other individuals from the area, which filled in a lot of the rest of the skeleton. So they found like parts of the hips and some ribs and all sorts of other bones. But unfortunately, some of those bones were either lost, destroyed, or misplaced in an unknown German museum's collection during World War II. Mm. Because as we know, with all the bombing that was going on in Europe, a lot of scientific specimens and artwork were unfortunately destroyed. And it's not just Spinosaurus in Dinosaur World. We also have part of Genentia. No, the sauropod. Yeah. Mostly what's missing, though, is part of the tail. We have a lot of other bones. I think they found quite a few individuals around Tanzania, so that kind of helped bolster. It wasn't like Spinosaurus where we only had the one, mm -hmm. and then that one got wiped out. Then took decades to find another. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. Don't bomb things. So <laughs> they didn't invalidate Genentia, which is kind of where I thought this was going to go when you start, whenever you do one of these big reviews and it's like, this is the one, we've lost the material, let's analyze it. Sometimes it heads that direction. But instead, what they did is they split out a new dinosaur from it, which is kind of the other way it tends to go in these papers. The new dinosaur is named Wamwuracadia carangii. And Wamwuracadia is after Wamwura, which is the largest tribe in the area of Tanzania, plus Cadia for tail. 
So it's kind of weird because it's like a, the tail of a tribe or something. Well, it's because <laughs> they found a tail, right? Yes. So they're kind of combining two different things in one. That happens a lot. Interesting note. Yeah, it does. And the species name is after Mohammadi Karanji, who supervised the excavation of the holotypic individual, as they say. As they say. Yeah, well, that's what the authors specifically wrote. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so as you can tell by the name, it's based on a unique tale. That's why they have that caudia end to the name of the tribe. So sometimes to me, I think this gets kind of overblown when you're basing specimens on tales because... In dinosaurs and some of the other early reptiles, you know, like we talk about sometimes with marine reptiles, not very often, but occasionally, they can have quite a big change in the number of tail vertebrae and things like that on a very short period of time. So it's not necessarily the best thing to diagnose a new species on, just because there's a lot of variability in tails that you don't see in other parts of the body as much. But in this case, they base their new species on a complete series, pretty much, of 30 tail vertebrae, which are all in pretty good shape. So I think it's a much better use of <laughs> naming a dinosaur after a tail. It's, there was one recently in, in Siberia where it was based on like three vertebrae from the tail, and they were all really worn down. It's like, how could this possibly be enough information to name a new species? This one's a lot better. It's possible too, that part of the Jananchia material should switch over to Wamuracadia, but it's really hard to tell based on the information we have. A lot of this stuff was excavated either before World War I or in between World War I and World War II, so we didn't have GPS. We didn't have a lot of photography going on out in the fields. It's mostly based on drawings or field notes and things like that, so it's hard to say which Fossils were found in like exact proximity to some of the others, and therefore it's hard to piece together which ones are probably from the same individual. They also got scattered into a few different museums, which makes it even more complicated. You have different people doing the excavations over a couple decades. So we might not ever really know which pieces belong with Jananchia and Wamwaracadia. And unfortunately, it doesn't really help that they're found in the same area because sometimes when things are found in the same area, you say, well, they're close relatives anyway. So even if this arm belongs to the other dinosaur, it's going to be pretty similar on its close relative. But these dinosaurs turn out not to be (laughs) that closely related. So like I was saying at the beginning where Tanzania has a lot of different dinosaur families, these two are both from different families. Wamuracadia is a mementosaurid, which is probably mm. my favorite type of sauropod. I love mementosaurids. Because the necks are so long. They've, yeah, their ne- necks are just epic. <laughs> their necks are literally sometimes half the length of their body or more. It's just these crazy, when you look at a silhouette of the thing, it looks like it's going to fall face first into the ground because it just has so much neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Genentia comes out almost in the exact opposite end of the spectrum. It's probably either a Turiosaurian or phylogenetically kind of in between Turiosauria and Diplodocids. Mm. And both of them have a lot more tail than neck. Right. So it's like the opposite (laughs) type of dinosaur. Yeah, they're known for their tails. Yeah, one is like super on the tail side, the other one's super on the head side. So if you have a, a hind leg, for example, like we do, which one does it belong to and... 
what does that mean about the overall size of the individual, the early evolution, how they were interacting in Tanzania. It's all kind of important to know which one it belongs to, but unfortunately we can't tell from what we have now. Hopefully we can go back there with some better techniques and find some overlapping tail vertebrae with a new find, hmm. and then we'll be able to piece it together better, but that's kind of a tall order. Well, Mary is hashtag need more fossils. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's generally the trend all over the world, but especially in Africa. I want way more African paleontologists. Yes. And to get that, we need more African researchers and African universities. Yes. And just generally more research on sauropods. That's good for everybody. <laughs> that's what everybody wants. <laughs> Nothing specific to Sabrina here. <laughs> And while we're on the topic of research, Dave Hone has a survey up to get feedback on his research impact. So if you remember either of the interviews we did with him over the past couple of years, or if you read his book, The Tyrannosaur Chronicles, you can fill out his survey and help him out because he has to collect this information once in a while to sort of justify his research and I guess measure the impact of how well he's doing. So we'll have a link in our show notes if you want to Give Dave some feedback. In some other news, Lauritsen Gardens in Omaha, Nebraska has a new indoor exhibit called Dinosaur Uproar. The exhibit's open until May 12th, so if you're in the area, you can check it out. They have life-size dinosaur sculptures as well as dinosaur and plant fossils from the University of Nebraska State Museum. And the idea is to give visitors an image of the world, both past and present. So that's why plants are a big part of it. Well, also it takes place in a garden. So. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. It's a good time of year for an indoor exhibit in Nebraska. Well, it's open till May, so it's open through <laughs> spring. <laughs> but spring in Omaha can go one of two ways. It could still be pretty cold. True. That's a lot of places in the world. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Brett who shared this next one with us. There's a new T-Rex Science Center in the works in Charleston, West Virginia. They've just broken ground at the old Purity Made Bread Factory. It's a $5 million project. There's going to be a prehistoric walk with 18 dinosaur replicas, a lot of fossils, an arcade, and a theater. And the plan is to focus around science and math. So Scott Breeden, who's working on the project, said that they're going to be opening in August, which seems really quick, but I guess they're using a previously used factory. Yeah. He said he and David Marshall have been talking about opening a family entertainment center for a couple of years, and then last year he found a new fossil. And he had geologist and paleontologist Ray Garten look at the fossil, and Garten said it was part of a 400-million-year-old tree. Nice. Yeah, so they started talking about fossils in the area, and then Garten said he's got a warehouse full of fossils. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided to go for it. The old bakery is pretty big. It's about 60,000 square feet. And the plan's to reach out to museums to borrow more fossils once the center opens. And they'll also be inviting locals to bring any fossils they find to the center. That's really cool. I don't know if we have any... West Virginian dinosaur museums on our map, but that would that could definitely fill in the void. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good use of the space too. Like the factory shut down a while ago, and then it was used as a space for artists, and then it was kind of abandoned for a while. So now it'll be for science. Unused warehouse space is a great place to put museums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody who wants to take it. An initiative and open some more dinosaur museums. We're in full support of this. <laughs> yes. In more art sort of things, there's a new but 
very expensive scarf. It's all about uh, this Polish graphic designer, Jans Beitlik. Hopefully, I am not butchering the name too much. Made a map of Warsaw, and it shows dinosaurs and other animals roaming in the city. And then he turned that image into a scarf. It's really colorful. He said it's based on a dream he had. It sort of looks like a comic. The animals that are in it include a sauropod. And then I saw penguins and even some mythical creatures like a unicorn. A lot of stuff going on there. The scarf costs almost 400 US dollars, though, so that's a bit pricey. So what's so special about this scarf? It's just cool that it's a map of Warsaw, but then you've got dinosaurs roaming around in the map. Is it related to where dinosaurs actually were? Is it? It's just... No, it's just based on a dream. Okay. I like the colors. So that was <laughs> I'm, mentioning. I'm clearly not the target of this $400 scarf. Well, I'm not going to buy it either, but <laughs> I did admire the image. Cool. Yeah. Last, thanks to Andrew who shared this one with us. So David James Armsby, who has a YouTube channel, Dead Sound, recently released a short film called Sharp Teeth. It's less than three and a half minutes, but it tells a really compelling story about dinosaur life, mostly around ceratopsians and theropods. The animation was gorgeous. I really enjoyed it. The story is told via narration that rhymes, and it's really cinematic, just really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I, I found it separately, I think on like a subreddit or something. Yeah, it's making its rounds. The dinosaurs are pretty accurate too. Like Some of them have feathers. It's a really good story. It's sad in some ways, but it also shows how animals are just living their lives. And you know, there's two sides to every story. Don't want to spoil it too much. I mean, it is only three and a half minutes, but <laughs> it involves mother dinosaurs trying to protect and feed their young. David also made a making a video that was really cool, and he did a lot of research. He said he's loved dinosaurs for a long time, and his desk is covered in them. And the animals in the video, there's Triceratops, Struthiomimus, that's the one with feathers, Alamosaurus, and then Pteranodon, not a dinosaur, but I said the animals in the video, and T-Rex, which is scaly. And in the making a video, there was a flash where we showed the latest Saurian post about T-Rex, and I think that's what caused him to make that his T-Rex scaly. Hmm, gotcha. Yeah. The latest, latest version from Saurian. Yes. Not the latest from a year ago yeah. where it was all fluffy. <laughs> so the video set in the late Cretaceous in North America, and David said that he purposely included some inaccuracies, probably for the storytelling. For example, there's a line of trusting those who fly, like pteranodons, and that's not true. They would have gone after whatever they could easily eat. <laughs> there's also not enough eggs in the nest and the baby triceratops is too big to be a newborn he said and triceratops probably didn't show that much parental care and also he added grass those aren't too bad actually grass if we have triceratops is probably okay because grass was evolving in the late cretaceous yeah but maybe it's the way he depicted the grass or yeah. something i don't know those are pretty light. I, I, I think he gets a pass on all of these. <laughs> yeah. He said some of the shots were inspired by walking with dinosaurs, telling this, this storytelling through it, almost oh, documentary sure, yeah. style. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I was thinking like in walking with dinosaurs, they have some scenes where the puppets are sort of in the nest, mm -hmm. like tending to eggs. And some of the animation sort of fits with that. Yeah. Cool. I'll have to watch that making of too. Mm -hmm. I might have to rewatch Sharp Teeth too. It was so good. It had good music and, yeah, just everything about it. And now we're going to get into our interview with the Fowlers. 
But if you are a patron, you may want to listen to the premium content version of this interview. As often is the case, we talk to them for longer (laughs) than we originally planned, but there was so much good stuff to talk about. That's often the case. Yeah. Once you get talking to dinosaur experts as dinosaur enthusiasts, the conversations can go on for a while. (laughs) And they've done so much. It's really amazing. But without further ado, here is our interview. We're here today with Drs. Denver Fowler and Elizabeth Friedman Fowler, who are paleontologists. They work at the Badlands Dinosaur Museum, which was formerly the Dakota Dinosaur Museum, part of the Dickinson Museum Center. Denver's the curator, and Liz is also an associate professor of biology at Dickinson State University. They've worked all over the world. Liz has worked as executive director at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site in Utah and the curator of paleontology at Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Montana. And Denver has done field work all over in the UK, Mongolia, China, the US, and Canada. Well, thanks for being here. How did the two of you meet? Uh, We met at a conference, so the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology annual conference. Oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody's ever said that that's how they met their spouse before, at least that we've talked to. It was, it was kind of weird that uh, Liz, Liz had spent the summer at um, field camp, I think. with Yeah, I'd done geology field camp. So we had a lot of friends in common. How long until the two of you started working together? Not long. Uh, the next year we were doing field work together and Denver became a grad student at MSU a little over a year later. Then we started collaborating on research projects. Nice. Do you collaborate on most projects together now? In some degree, there's always collaboration because we'll always be talking about our research with each other. And then, you know, so we may or may not be co-authors on each other's papers. I usually do the, uh, the math and the analysis and then the final editing, whereas Denver's more the idea man, so we'll write the, <laughs> the thought part of the paper, a lot of the discussions, usually him. Uh, good. It's a complementary skill set. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also do field work together, right? You're co-leaders for the Badlands Dinosaur Museum. Yeah. It's uh, really nice. We finally get to do field work together because as grad students, um, my research was in the Judith River Formation and his was in the Hell Creek Formation. So we were actually digging in different areas of Montana mm-hmm. at the same time. Now we get to dig the same sites together, which is much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. And then you guys also, so having that sort of different background, do you have a different perspective on sort of the paleontology of Montana or is there a lot of overlap? I think we, um, we tend to just look at different things, really. I mean, um, and some of that is conscious that if Liz already works on a group, I don't really need to focus on it as much uh, and vice versa. But I think our PhDs were, were, were quite different too. I was doing a lot of stratigraphy. And Liz was doing a lot of anatomy. Yeah, so there's kind of the same unifying viewpoints on it. Like we we like to focus on the ontogeny and the evolution of species. And so looking at the relationships between how animals change as they grow up, as well as over time. But then we do it in slightly different ways. Like Denver focuses more on the geology side, really pinning down the stratigraphy to look at evolution over time. Uh, whereas I'm more on the biological anatomical side. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I, mean, I guess we, we attack the same problem, but from different angles, which is really beneficial for research projects. 
Yeah, that's really cool. And you guys recently, I mean, I don't know how public it is, but you at least told one paper about something that you were calling ankylomania, which was like a notosaur you found last year. Have you progressed on anything with that? The specimen we found in uh, 2015, and we first dug the site last year. We didn't know what to expect. When we first found the site, I'd just come across some some nice um, osteoderms, and there were some other bones going in. Um, but as with many of these things, um, they can often just peter out, mm. and especially because this was in the foremost formation, which is very, very rare to find anything decent. Um, so we had a go, and um, very quickly um, it turned into a really good site. So we dug there last year, and then we just finished the site off this summer. And there wasn't too much more we collected this year, but we got loads of really good stuff the previous year. So that was ankylomania. We got um, the skull. We didn't get the lower jaws, but we got a complete upper skull. Um, we got most of the major limb bones. We don't. Nice. We have one one toe bone, but we don't have any other toe bones. But we have almost all of the major limb bones. We're just missing one femur. Hmm. Yeah, and a fair number of scutes. Yeah, we got quite a number of scutes. I mean, there should be hundreds. We haven't got that many, but we've got quite a few of the larger ones. Um, especially around the neck region. It's a nodosaur, so it's not one of the ones with tail clubs. Um, it's a nodosaur. And because it's from so low in section, no one has ever recovered a nodosaur from this low. The next one, the next closest one is 2 million years younger. So given that sort of time difference, we would expect it to be a new taxon or at least, uh, well, we'd expect it to be a new taxon and quite how it fits in with all the later ones um, will be interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Was that near your museum? Uh, no, it's in Montana. So most of the field work we're doing is still in Montana. Gotcha. Even though we're in North Dakota, but we're on the western edge of North Dakota. So it's actually only an hour for us to hop over into Montana. And, th and that project was done in, in conjunction with the Depot Museum in Rudyard, Montana, um, with the Reddings, who, who Liz has worked with for many years. And that's where me and Liz have a bit of a history with that ranch. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's cool. Farm. Yeah, we hear a lot of stories about people that have been going to like the same ranch for a really long time. Like I know Jack Horner has a ranch he talks about that he's been going to for like 30 years. <laughs> yeah, that's the same one. Oh, it is the same one? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's how I got started there as a grad student. Oh, that's great. I've been going there since 2004. Wow. <laughs> There's been a lot of good stuff found on that ranch. There is. It's uh, it's just a fantastic area. It's kind of a unique a period of time that we don't have very well sampled from other areas and the people are super nice so it's a great place to camp and you know we're still finding new things there new new species and new uh you know like we haven't found a good ankylosaur specimen there yet cool is that like a huge ranch i'm imagining like if you're finding all this stuff it might must be enormous but or is it more like concentrated uh, well, they uh, it's a wheat farm, so they farm about 5,000 acres, but you know most of that is flat farmland. Uh, it's only you know maybe a mile long valley that we're actually digging in. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of badlands there, which is where obviously you find the fossils. Um, I, I made the mistake there calling it a ranch. It is it is it's a wheat farm, so most of it's flat um, agricultural land. Yeah, um, they not... do run cows in the coulee though, so. You because know, you, you have to dig in places that are more steep-sided and don't have plants and they have a lot of erosion, so you can actually see the rocks. Right. So 
you know, those areas are no good for wheat farming, but they run the cows in them. <laughs> so do have to make sure the cows don't step on the fossils and they hang out and they watch us. Yes, they're very curious cows. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Can you tell us, I know something that was kind of big news over the summer and I think last summer as well, the, the tyrannosaur skeleton you've been working on. Um, yeah, so we came across this area because the BLM, I was actually getting a permit signed for the, for the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, for a different area. And in the lobby of their uh, regional office in Haver, Montana, there was this beautiful jawbone and it was of a ceratopsid. A lizard. It was it was labeled as a hadrosaur, but Liz said that's not a hadrosaur. <laughs> right, she's an so, expert. Yeah. So, so we asked, "Where does this thing come from?" And um, they said, "Oh, it comes from from a bit west of here, a bit east of here." Um, so they took us there year before last. We eventually located the site where it came from, and so we we got an excavation permit um, to work on. Oh, well, we got a surface collecting permit to work on that last year, and we we looked around the local area as well and just started knocking into uh, more remains. So the ceratopsid was pretty cool already. It's a centrosaurus. We have a few parts of the skull. But um, near that area, uh, we found tyrannosaur foot um, eroding out of the cliff. So we, uh, we dug in a little bit, but we, we only had a surface collecting permit that year. And it became pretty quickly apparent that there was probably going to be more. So we collected all the surface bone, and came back this year with an excavation permit. So we excavated in this year, this, this uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, wow. so what Denver found initially was the feet coming out of the cliff. So a lot of the toe bones were tumbling out mm -hmm. uh, and washing down a little stream. And so we dug up those toe bones and we could see the ankles going into the hill. Ooh. And with a, a surface collection permit like we had that year, you can only dig a very small hole and so we knew we wouldn't be able to dig enough to get out the legs. And hopefully the rest of the skeleton was in there. So we had to wait. Yeah. It, it's not that unusual to find just one leg. Uh, we found this gorgeous hadrosaur leg um, <laughs> um, on arm, actually. So isolated, you know, one arm or one leg is not that rare. But we had both feet together and you could see the ankles. So, I mean, that suggests you've got both legs are in the right place or in the right position. If you've got both ankles in life position, why not the whole leg? Why not the hips and the whole skeleton? Mm -hmm. And given what we'd seen in this area with a number of associated skeletons of different things, um, we thought, well, there's a good shot that there'd be more of it. So that's what we were hopeful for this year. And so we went back to the site and we dug a big hole with our excavation permit. And lo and behold, it seems like the rest of it is there. We were not expecting it to be as heavily concreted as it is. It's in a really hard sandstone, mm, mm -hmm. which is both good and bad. Bad in the sense that it makes it more difficult to get out and it's very, very heavy. Mm -hmm. It's good mm -hmm. in the sense that it improves the preservation of the bone. And we're really lucky there might be other things like skin preserved, um, which we have seen elsewhere in this really hard sand. So we're hopeful of that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like the Borealopelta was in a really hard concretion too, and then they open that up, and it's it almost looks like a mummified, amazing specimen. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. Looks like it's alive. I love that specimen. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine if you found a tyrannosaur like that. That would just be astonishing. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we'll have to see. I mean, the problem with the skin 
in, in this sandstone is that it's if there is skin, it's, skin is usually preserved on the underside of the of however the skeleton is is lying. Oh yeah, which means you have you have to flip any block, and <laughs> this block is like four meters by four meters. Flipping that will be will be enormous fun. But uh, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about any of that until it is out and it's not here. four meters by four meters. It's two meters by two meters. It's two by three and a half. All right. Yeah, it's big enough. It's big. We're going to need a really big helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it's a giant concreted block, but it's we we took out all the exposed bone um, because there were some bones that weren't in the concretion. So the belly ribs, uh, scapula, tail. So there's just this giant lump, and it's it's enormously heavy. <laughs> <Say that. laughs> that is awesome, though. We've heard people talk before about basically what you're describing where like the ideal find is there's just like a tip of a toe or the tip of a tail and then you dig in and then the rest of the animal is just there perfectly you know articulated so that's really cool totally i mean the number of sites we've come across in the past where it's either coming out head first or you know you find the head because it's all smashed out on the surface we've, mm -hmm. we've had a few sites like that recently and this one was exactly what you want it was feet Going in, there was nice solid cliff all around it. So if it was there, it should all be there. You can never, you can never be sure there isn't a rotten sinkhole. You know, six foot back in the cliff, it just <laughs> takes out the bit that you want. Uh, there's been sites like that before, right over the skull, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. That's yeah. um, yeah. This one, this one, we uh, lucked out that it was just right. Yeah, yeah that's it's awesome. beautiful preservation too. I mean, we haven't seen what's deep inside the concretion yet, but the bones around the outer edge are just gorgeous. Um, the tail is beautiful. Uh, there's some pictures up on Facebook on the Dickinson Museum Center page. Yeah. It's got some cute pathologies as well on some of the belly ribs, which is pretty cool. So a bit of character to the specimen. What's a cute pathology? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just meant like it's got some bony growths on some of the um, gastralia. Mm. So. Maybe took a kick to the ribs at some point. I don't know. It's, it's not unusual for a theropods to have like broken ribs and things, but right. uh, there's there's some evidence of that already, so that's pretty nice. So you said it was like what two and a half meters long? Is it kind of curled up, or is it like a really young tyrannosaur? Yeah, it's not small. It's pistatonic, so the tail's fully wrapped over the top of the skeleton, and the, it looks like the neck is fully retracted back. Um, we haven't seen any vertebrae or anything. So all, the central part of the skeleton is deep in the concretion. It's got at least a foot of concretion over the top, and it's got it's almost completely surrounded. Yeah, it's going to be heavy, but we should get it out next summer, and then it's going to take a while to clean that, to, to prepare it and chisel through all the rock to get to the skeleton. It's going to take a very long time. And you've got a spot ready for it in the museum prep lab? Uh, well, we, ha we have to measure the doors and make sure we can actually fit it in the doors. Otherwise, we have to buy new doors. Yeah, it seems unlikely <laughs> that the doors to the prep lab are wide enough. Um, it's like an extra wide double door, but it's probably not wide enough. So <laughs> we were in, we we're in need of some new doors anyway. So. <laughs> All works out. <laughs> it's possible the block might get might be trimmable. I doubt it, frankly. But um, maybe if it was just a few inches narrow, it might just slip in. But um. Yeah, we're trying to get a few things out of the way in the lab um, so we've got space for it. You know, this is all very presumptuous. I, I'm not comfortable until this thing is actually out <laughs> here, sat on, the, sat on a flatbed and 
I don't have to worry anymore. Yeah, you know, we've got a Triceratops grill that we've we've opened the jacket up, we're cleaning that up and trying to get the rest of this ankylosaur done so we can have that on display um, and just get stuck into new things um, around about you know, September next year. Speaking of the Badlands Dinosaur Museum, do you still have the claws exhibit? Yeah, claws. I'm still. I'm finalizing uh, quite a lot of it right right now. Uh, so the claws exhibit is a permanent exhibit. It's showcasing the research that we did in 2009 and 2011 on um, birds of prey and how the way that they use their claws and how that relates to raptor dinosaurs, things like Velociraptor, Deinonychus. So for that exhibit, we had a couple of we had a couple of feathered dinosaur models made. One is of a Cararaptor, um, a Velociraptor-like animal that lived in the Hell Creek of North Dakota, mm-hmm. and it's it's fighting with a Didelphodon, and so it's showing this new way of looking at raptor dinosaurs that they probably pinned down their prey and stood on top of their prey. Um, so that's what that model shows. And then another model we have made um, is a uh, Alvarasaurid, um, nice. which is currently currently unnamed, but we have Alvarasaurids from the Hell Creek Formation. Um, we've been collecting a few odds and ends from those in the last few years, which I'm finalizing some research on right now. We have some nice new claws and things like that. Um, so we'll have those on display as well. But this new model shows it shows an Alvarasaurid and it says, okay, what does it do with its claws? It has pretty, pretty crazy claws and really, really tough, short arms and really long legs. And it's a very, very weird dinosaur. And I think people aren't really familiar with the idea that they lived here in North Dakota and Montana. They're, Traditionally, I suppose, uh, an Asian uh, group, the, the best fossils are from Mongolia. Um, but we get them right here in, in uh, the Hell Creek Formation of North Dakota and Montana. Uh, so we had that model made. And that model was the one that won the Lanzendorf National Geographic Prize at uh, SVP. Oh, yeah, that was oh, a good yeah. one. Have you seen the new article about, I forget which, because there were like three Alvarosaurids named this year, but one of them, they hypothesized that maybe they were using their claws to kind of crack open eggs. What do you think about that? I think it'd be very difficult for them to do that. <laughs> and I, I really like the suggestions from Phil Center, I think, and uh, Nick Longrich uh, also wrote about this, that they were using the claws for ripping open rotting logs, looking for grubs and things like that, uh, possibly termite mounds if such animals were living around. I think that's more plausible than cracking open eggs. When you look at the skulls of, of Alvarosaurids, they have a skull that's very consistent with insectivory, perhaps not so much with what, ovivory. Would you call yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> uh, I think I've ever said that word before. <laughs> yeah, most there's not really animals that specialize in eating eggs. It's just a general thing that Almost any animal will eat an egg given the chance. Yeah, I think it's a tropical snake that is mostly an egg expert, but mm. maybe. Mm. But I think that's about it. Yeah, so I mean, the shape of the claw also. I mean, why would you pierce an egg with a claw? It, it, it seems a little unlikely to me. Yeah, you'd peck it open with the mouth. Something like that. I mean, the arms are incredibly short on these things, and they have massive, massively built forelimbs. I mean, they're really, really short, <laughs> massively built. The leverage must have been enormous. So that makes much more sense if they're inserting the claws into logs and just pulling the bark away, you know, to get at um, grubs and things. Right. I don't know if you, when I when I used to collect in the Isle of Wight, there was one winter when my uh, my collecting my collecting friend John he was tasked with finding all these beetles in the middle of the winter 
for his biology degree. So he went and went splitting rotten logs looking for beetles. And it's amazing the number of grubs and beetles <laughs> you find in, in this rotten wood. So I suspect that uh, that's what Mononikines were doing. Yeah, that's a, I like that idea. I, I like the fact that they have really, really long legs. I mean, people focus on the arms and the claws, and now we have nice skulls, but they have ridiculously long legs, unfortunately. <laughs> I always think they're just they're adapted for running away from angry bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they're one of my favorite groups of dinosaurs just because they're so strange. It's kind of the opposite of therizinosaurs, where they like are combining like huge arms and like, you know, they look like such a massive, powerful thing. And then this one has like deceptively powerful tiny arms. It's just it's great. Yeah, uh, our model was specifically made to uh, to look kind of weird, kind of kooky looking. Um, <laughs> the, the artist, and, and he's a paleontologist as well, Boban Filipovic, who's Serbian. Um, he has a master's degree in paleontology, but we specifically made it to make eye contact with the visitor, and it also has like a crazy crest on top of its head, so he's, he's your weird little buddy, as Alvaro saw. That is great. Cool. Is there anything else that you're working on now, either at the exhibit or, you know, kind of in your personal research projects, I guess? You know, I really wish I had more research projects completed. <laughs> I mean, everybody has a lot of research projects going, I think, and everybody wishes they had more things finished. Um, we have some ceratopsid remains um, presented on a few years ago, which we want to get described and finished. I am working on getting the Tyrannosaur bite marks project through. We want to get that through maybe by end of February, something like that, next year. That one's been sitting around for a number of years, but you know, we had all these triceratops frills with bite marks all over them. So that's something I want to get done, done and gone. But a lot, a lot of things like that. I've been presenting a lot at SVP and not writing a lot. So I think it needs to be turned around. Oh, this coming year, because SVP is being held in Australia, we thought we would um, host a meeting here in Dickinson. Oh. Uh, yeah, so we're just in the initial planning stages for this meeting. It's going to be held uh, probably about mid-September here in Dickinson. And we're mainly going to be focusing on the late Cretaceous and then into the Paleogene because that's the sort of rocks that we have in the general area. So in the Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota area, you've got your late Cretaceous, like Judith River Formation, Hill Creek Formation. Uh, and then post Cape T, there's a lot of mammals uh, in North Dakota. So the uh, group over in Bismarck, the North Dakota Geological Survey, they focus a lot on the mammal research here in North Dakota. So we're working together, putting together this conference. And so anybody that works on late Cretaceous or early Cenozoic, uh, is welcome to come. It will be SVP style, but a little smaller, and it should be a lot of fun. Nice. Awesome. Gives people an opportunity to present something in this year when uh, it's in Australia, and we probably couldn't afford to go, and I imagine there's quite a lot of people in that boat. So and we also would, you know, we'd really love to host a meeting on uh, the Judith River and Hell Creek stuff that we've been working on the last few years. So we're keen to see some of our colleagues and show some of the things we found and discuss all sorts of exciting stratigraphy, but also uh, some of the cool sites that we have out in the Judith, especially. Yeah, so we're getting really excited for it. We've just been a good initial response, a lot of interest. We should also ask, I totally glazed over it, but Liz, you did a big sort of model on Myasora mortality a few years back. Could you tell us a little about that? Uh, so that was a project I did with Holly Woodward. Uh, 
was kind of the main focus of her PhD dissertation was uh, looking at Myasaura because there's been so many fossils of it found in these massive bone beds. We have one of the largest sample sizes that you can for any dinosaur that's known. So what she did was the histology of it. So she took 50 tibiae, the shin bone, and made a slice of each one so that she could count up the growth rings and see how many years old each individual was. Uh, so then I came in with the math side of it, making the uh, graphs and things like that. But it was really cool because we had such a large sample size of these leg bones, we could make correlations between how big the bone was, so like how long the bone is around and how many years old it is. And this enabled us to make a mortality curve. So you could see the ages that the uh, myosaur is most likely to die at. And then we can correlate that with the growth curve uh, showing how big they get every year. And there's actually two spots where these two different graphs uh, align. And so we think these are major life events. So you have one major change uh, when they're about three years old. And we think this corresponds to when they become sexually mature. So they are of reproductive age and can start laying eggs. That's young. Because when an animal reaches sexual maturity, it kind of shifts the allocation of resources within its body. And so you have major behavioral and physiological changes. And so we're seeing that change in their leg bones as well as within the death rates. Um, wow. And then, so that's about three years old, these hadrosaurs reach reproductive age. And then they reach their maximum size about 10 or 11 years old. And once they reach their maximum size, uh, death rates increase again. So that's when they're hitting old age and getting senescent or elderly. Hmm. Wow, that's, that's really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You, you think because dinosaurs are so gigantic that they uh, lived for hundreds of years or something. But no, most of them are relatively short-lived. They just grow incredibly quickly. Yeah. There's probably a really big difference in size between a three-year-old and like a 10-year-old too, right? Uh, yeah. So three-year-old is about half to two-thirds grown. Oh, okay. So just like, you know, with humans, we reach reproductive age, but we're still not fully grown. Mm -hmm. So like a teenager hits puberty, but they're still growing, mm -hmm. even though they're technically capable of having children, <laughs> they may continue growing taller, things like that. So we see that in the hadrosaurs as well. Wow. Interesting. Things worth um, pointing out, like, yeah, we're, we're continuing uh, our supervisor, Jack Horner's commitment to uh, studying <laughs> dinosaurs through histology. Mm-hmm. We, we had a T-Rex leg here. Well, we have a T-Rex leg. I shouldn't yeah. use the past tense. Um, when I came here, there was a leg of a T-Rex. And um, it was like, what can you get out of the, the specimens that are here research-wise? So one thing we could do with this T-Rex leg is histologically section it. There wasn't very much data on where it came from. But Hollywood, would, again, is, a, is doing is studying Tyrannosaur histology right now. Mm -hmm. So we said, all right, well, we will saw up this leg for that project. So... We fully sectioned each of the major leg bones, and that'll make it the most heavily sampled tyrannosaur, um, tyrannosaur that there has been. Cool. So Holly's looking at that right now. But we did a little uh, live live broadcast about a year ago, showing us actually soaring through the soaring through the femur, uh, which was which was pretty cool. So we'll have we're going to mount that leg and put it on display. Um, but uh, we're fully committed to furthering this kind of histological approach, both with 
the historical specimens that we have, but also some of the new things that we're finding. If we think we can uh, get good data out of uh, histologically sectioning them, then then that's the way we need to, to go. Yeah. How does it feel to saw through a fossil? Is it nerve wracking at all? Uh, generally not. No, it's uh, it's fun. It's slow. Hmm. Uh, it's a very long process getting a specimen ready for histology because you want to make sure it's very, very stable. So there's a long period of gluing and just inserting glue in all the cracks, letting it dry, putting in more glue, letting it dry. Um, so it takes quite a while. And then when you're finally ready to start sawing it, it's very stable and solid. So hmm. no, it's not nerve wracking at all. Yeah, it's just about sitting there, making sure the saw doesn't overheat. And uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we use diamond-tipped uh, saw blades, and you just go really slowly. Yeah. And then when you're you're doing histology on a bone that big, like how, what do you put it into? Because you can't, <laughs> like, that's a large slide. <laughs> it is, it is. It's, uh, so we took the uh, centerpiece out of this T-Rex femur, and we sent it down to Hollywoodward uh, in Oklahoma to uh, finish the sectioning process. And so she had to change her methods a bit. She had to buy her bigger saw and uh, <laughs> only container she could fit it into was actually a flower pot. So she put it in a flower pot. Uh, Cause the next stage is embedding the section in resin. So you put it in a thin resin and then vacuum it to remove all air bubbles and get that resin fully permeating the bones. So it's incredibly solid and you don't have to worry about it uh, fracturing. And then she's gonna cut it into smaller pieces. And yes, because this section's so big, it's maybe what, eight inches across? Uh, in diameter, uh, she will cut that into some smaller pieces. So it's not all on one giant glass slide. It'll be on like three different glass slides. Yeah, it's called flower pot rex now. So <laughs> rex would have been a better name, but flower pot rex. She posted some pictures of uh, of them doing that uh, on her Twitter account fairly recently. Nice. That's great. So for our listeners then, if they wanted to learn more about both of you and your work, like where would the where would be the best place to find out more about you and what you do? It would be on Facebook. So there's uh, two pages that have somewhat similar material. Uh, there's the main Dickinson Museum Center Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Search for that on Facebook, Dickinson Museum Center. Our uh, more personal page is Fowler Paleontology and Geology. So that shows our research, field work. Yeah, I have, I have a Twitter account at DF9465. Um, which is mostly posting the same sorts of things that go on the Facebook page, but sort of Twitter version. I don't tweet very much, but uh, I, po I post pictures from the field, that kind of thing. Cool. Nice. Well, we'll post those links. Thanks so much for chatting with us today. We love husband-wife team since we're one. So <laughs> <laughs> it's good to hear more about you and your work. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, very dinosaur-heavy all the time. <laughs> yes. It's a, it means we have to try and find something else to put on the walls of the house instead of <laughs> dinosaur pictures. <laughs> That's mostly yeah, what's on. It's pretty much all dinosaur pictures. Yeah, yeah. It's mostly dinosaur pictures. <laughs> There's so many good ones. <laughs> Thanks again, Denver and Liz. We had a really great time. And just a quick mention that they are hosting a symposium on the Cretaceous and Paleogene Vertebrate Paleontology of the Western Interior in September in North Dakota, and the website is now up. We'll add a link to the show notes, and the symposium is called Cretaceous and Beyond. 
Before we get into our dinosaur of the day, we have a word from our sponsor, Indiana University Press. They have a Life of the Past series that showcases the latest findings and interpretations of the field of paleontology. And I want to highlight a specific book, Mesozoic Sea Dragons. This isn't about dinosaurs, but it is about marine life in the Triassic. And actually, it's a new book that will not be available until May 1st of this year. Told in rich detail and with gorgeous color recreations, this is the story of marine life in the age before the dinosaurs. During the Middle Triassic period, 247 to 237 million years ago, the mountain of Monte San Giorgio in Switzerland was a tropical lagoon. Today, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site because it boasts an astonishing fossil record of marine life from that time. Attracted to an incredibly diverse and well-preserved set of fossils, Swiss and Italian paleontologists have been excavating the mountain since 1850. Synthesizing and interpreting over a century of discoveries through a critical 21st century lens, paleontologist Olivia Rippel tells for the first time the complete story of the fish and marine reptiles who made that long-ago lagoon their home. Through careful analysis and vividly rendered recreations, he offers memorable glimpses of not only what thalatosaurs, proterosaurs, ichthyosaurs, pachypleurosaurs, and other marine life looked like, but how they moved and lived in the lagoon. An invaluable resource for specialists and accessible to all, this book is essential to all who are fascinated with ancient marine life. And though the book will not come out until May 1st of this year, you can pre-order the book. So if you'd like to pre-order this book or buy any of the other Life in the Past series books from Indiana University Press, then go to their website at iupress.indiana.edu. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Netoceratops, which was a request from Super Mario Logan fan, so thanks. It was a ceratopsid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Wyoming, North America, in the Lance Formation, and it's part of the Triceratops and Taurosaurus debate, which we discussed in more detail in episode Ultrasaurus, episode 21. It's a controversial genus, as you might have guessed, it's part of that debate. Some think that it's a valid genus, others think that it's part of the Triceratops growth series. It's only known from one skull. The skull is... 2.6 feet or 1.8 meters long, and the skull was found in 1891 near Lightning Creek, Wyoming. The skull has a rounded stump instead of a nasal horn, and the brow horns are almost vertical. Otherwise, it's similar to a triceratops skull, but larger and with a short face. There's also large holes in the frill that are different sizes, which is not like triceratops, but these could either be a pathology or genetic. And those holes are like torosaurus. So that kind of fits into this whole ontogeny thing. Oh, if Taurosaurus is an adult Triceratops? Yes. Yeah. This would be like in between, I guess. Yeah. So Lowell thought that the holes in the frill were from, quote unquote, accidental gorings Whoa. from another dinosaur. But it's not clear if that's true. That'd be quite a weird way to get injured. Mm-hmm. Like somebody attacks you and it makes like a perfect circle hole <laughs> in your frill. It's true. Especially because we know of other ceratopsians now that just have holes in all of their frills pretty consistently. Right. But this was back in the 1800s. So. Yeah. The type species is Netoceratops hatcheri, and the name means insufficient horned face because there's a lack of a nasal horn. <laughs> Netoceratops has a couple other names, Diceratops and Diceratus. Othniel Charles Marsh started describing Netoceratops in the 1800s as part of his Ceratopsidae monograph, but then he died in 1899 of pneumonia before he finished, 
and John Bell Hatcher finished the Triceratops section, but then he died in 1904 of typhoid fever before finishing. Oh my God. So then Richard Swan Lowell finished the monograph in 1905 and published Hatcher's description of the skull separately and named it Diceratops Hatcheri, which means two-horned face. Lowell didn't actually believe this dinosaur was a separate genus. He thought that it was a pathology. So I guess he was just giving options as the accidental gorings, but he also thought it was a pathology. And in 1933, he renamed it as Triceratops hatcheri. In 2007, Andrei Sergevich Ukrainsky renamed Diceratops slash Triceratops as Netoceratops. Turns out the name Diceratops was used for an insect already. However, Octavio Mateus didn't realize that Ukrainsky had renamed the dinosaur and renamed it Diceratus in 2008. And Diceratus is now considered to be a junior synonym since the name Netoceratops came first. There's a debate about Netoceratops being part of the Triceratops growth series in between Triceratops and Taurosaurus, as Garrett mentioned. And John Scanella and Jack Horner proposed Netoceratops lost its nasal horn either while it was alive or during fossilization. However, Andy Farkey said that the shape of the horns and the texture of the bones suggest that Netoceratops was an old adult. In 2013, Leonardo Maiorino and others found that Triceratops and Taurosaurus were distinct genera. Farkey suggested that the holes in the frill weren't from Gorings, but from the, quote, result of bone resorption in an area of the frill that was already thin to begin with. And Myrino found that Netoceratops, quote, has a variable position relative to Triceratops and Taurosaurus. This is depending on what you're looking at, and that the size of the skull could support the hypothesis of it being an intermediate between the two, but the shape of the skull is very different. Some scientists think that Netoceratops could be a direct ancestor to Triceratops or its nearest relative. But, as often is the case, we need more fossils to know for sure about Netoceratops and to examine the bone microstructure. It kind of seems like these Ceratopsians just had a lot of individual variation, which messes things up, and then also a lot of pretty rapid and radical evolution in terms of their horns. So just in a couple hundred thousand years, you could have a dinosaur that looks a lot different. And usually we just lump it all in together into one genus. But since a lot of these differences are fossilizing with Triceratops and the close relatives, it makes it a lot more difficult. And our fun fact of the day is that dinosaurs dominated the entire earth, essentially, all the land on it, for sure, throughout all of the Jurassic and Cretaceous which is the period from 201 million years ago to 66 million years ago. In other words, for a period of about 135 million years, they were the dominant terrestrial group. And so I was interested in what this means on sort of a relative basis. Like how much of Earth's history did dinosaurs dominate? So the Earth is four and a half billion years old. So if you just take that at like face value and you just do a percentage of earth it's not that impressive but there wasn't much that fossilized until the cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago so then it becomes a little bit more impressive you know now you're above one-fifth of time <laughs> that you might expect to see fossils but i i would contend that <laughs> It doesn't really count until you have a lot of terrestrial animals. And there weren't really animals that could live on land without frequently returning to water until about 310 million years ago. I found some estimates of 340, but I haven't really seen any fossils that show that. So I think it's sort of predicting trends backwards. So I'm not really confident in that. And 
Prior to that, it's basically just like fish with legs and amphibians. And so obviously they have to stay close to the water. Whereas once you have amniotes, which can lay hard shell eggs or give live birth and things like that, sky's the limit. You can go anywhere on land, basically. So of that period, from 310 million years ago to the present, dinosaurs have been around for about 240 million years. <laughs> In other words, about three quarters of the history of terrestrial life on land. And they've been successful for that entire period. Just sometimes they were dominating and other times they've just been all over the place like they are now. Speaking specifically of that sort of dominant time period, the age of the dinosaurs, which does not include the Triassic. Even though dinosaurs were around in the Triassic, they really didn't start dominating the ecosystem until the Triassic-Jurassic extinction that sort of kicked them into high gear. Some of their competitors got knocked down a peg and they sprung up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the same as mammals. They were around during the dinosaurs, but it wasn't until the dino well, until the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct that mammals really rose up. Yeah, that's true. And actually, it's kind of interesting because mammals' ancestors, the synapsids actually had a little bit of a brief heyday for a couple tens of millions of years prior to dinosaurs. <laughs> so it's sort of a repeated rise to dominance of synapsids after the Cretaceous. But anyway, I digress. So you've got 135 million years out of about 310 million years, which means that nearly half of all of Earth's terrestrial history was dominated by dinosaurs. Mammals have only dominated for at most 66 million years, which is less than a quarter of the history of terrestrial life. And then if we talk about humans, it's just like, don't even bother. It's sort of like a rounding error. <laughs> And the main reason I was thinking of this is because people are always talking about going the way of the dinosaurs. And I always think if you're going the way of the dinosaurs, that means you basically dominated the entire world for a huge portion of time and then eventually sort of evolved into a slightly smaller role because birds are still everywhere. They're just biding their time. They really are. I think it's just going to be this like synapsid cycling with dinosaur cycle. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Well, no, in a couple million years or billion well, years. Not us. <laughs> True. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino on that happy note. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash for some cool rewards like connecting on our new Discord. You can also reach us through various social media and other accounts. we got YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the main ones, Pinterest. Google Plus for another couple months. Eh, it's pretty much gone. <laughs> True. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Good day.